Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 41. We're going to finish up some thoughts about about Christ being the Lord of time. It means he is sovereign over time. He rules time. He is above it, but he he also acts in it. And when he acts in it, he acts as its Lord, um, just as much as him acting above it. Uh, He is the creator of time, the sustainer of time, and all those things. And Isaiah, we just want to put a bow on some thoughts here, talk about a few heresies. (laughs) And and, uh, then we're going to talk about him being the Lord of space. (laughs) So go from him to being the Lord of time to the Lord of space. Of course, I'm using John Frame's systematic theology as our launching point for our discussions. Uh, sometimes I adhere very closely to his outline. Sometimes I go off on my own tangent. But uh, we, he is, I want to just let you know that as far as the outline here, um, that's what we're using. Uh, we have talked as we've gone through this about the central theme of the scriptures is lordship. One out of every five verses declare the lordship of God. And those are just the explicit, the implicit. For Take, for instance, uh, the book of Esther does not mention the name of the Lord or his lordship once explicitly, but you cannot read Esther without seeing clearly that he is the Lord working all things for his glory and for the good of those that love him. So, Implicitly, as well, we must say that the overwhelming theme of the scriptures is lordship. So we've talked about that as the basis. We talked about God's acts, uh, his miracles, his providence, his decrees, um, and all that. And then we started talking about his attributes. We talked about his attributes, his moral attributes. That's his uh, his uh, his benevolence, uh, his wrath. Uh, his righteousness. We've talked about his intellectual attributes, and now we're right in the midst of talking about his power attributes. And we talked about his sovereignty, and now we've launched into a discussion of his infinity and eternality. He is eternal and infinite in the sense that he is omni-everything. There are no limitations. And when we, we started applying this to time, we described this as being him being Lord over time, uh, he, it, all those things that we talked about. So Isaiah it will become our launching point, Isaiah 41, for our just final discussions today uh, about time. Verse 2, let's start in verse 1. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who, who raised up right, the righteous man from the east? Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Called him to his foot. Gave the nations before him. Who's he talking about? Any guesses? Any guesses? 
and made him rule over kings. Who's he talking about? Who did God raise up in the east? Talking about uh, judgment coming, right? <laughs> On Israel. Babylon. He gave them to, as the dust of his sword and as the driven stubble of his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. He expanded his kingdom. Who, the question is, is who is doing this? Who hath wrought and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Here we have a description of the Lord, who is above time, acting in time. Amen? In a sequential way, one after another. And the quandary we started talking about last week is, what does this say about the immutability of God? Because we believe He is immutable, and we talked about how He is immutable and what we mean by immutability. Uh, well, here we have Him acting in time. The unchangeable God acting in time, appearing to us to change as time goes on, to change uh, uh, to make one decision and, that, and another decision and so on and so forth. And we kind of unpacked a little bit of this week. Let's remind ourselves of what do we mean when we mean immutability. We talked about four things here uh, that talk about God being unchanging. He is unchanging in His essential attributes. Uh, Thou art the same, Psalm 102 the world changes. It goes from it's decaying. It's it's and one day it's going to be folded up and be done with. But you are the same. We mean God in His attributes does not change. He is not growing more knowledgeable. He is not. Uh, uh, his understanding is already infinite according to the Psalms. Uh, he is not. He is not becoming more righteous, more 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 good. He is perfectly good in all of His attributes. None of that changes. God does not change in His nature. So we talked about that. What else did we mean? He does not change in His decree, in His decrees, in His decreative will. The counsel of the Lord stands, Psalm 33, 11. Uh, what God has said will come to pass, uh, absent any conditions which God has declared prophetically or otherwise, what God has said will come to pass, comes to pass. Psalm 2. I have declared a decree. The Lord has said unto, unto me, Thou art my son. Uh, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee, he, thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the un, uh, and so on and so forth. Thou shalt rule them with a rod of iron. All of that is the decrees of God. And he has, he has ordered all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians chapter 1. His decrees are unchanging. Uh, his, he does not change in his covenantal faithfulness. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, he says, I change not. Uh, so that's a description of his immutability. But in what context in Malachi 3, 6? 
for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, because he has a covenantal relationship with them, and God is faithful. And that's a great thing, because I can read the promises of God to me in the new covenant that brought me in, and I can say, my God is faithful. Therefore, when he says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, God is faithful. There's no condition there. He holds me. Christ holds me. I and my Father, we are one. Right? He's faithful to me. He's faithful to you. And we talked about lastly, uh, he's faithful in the truth of his revelation. What God declares to be true was true from the beginning, will always be true, uh, and it doesn't change. So, as we describe what we mean by immutability, God acting in time does not change that, because God is acting in time based upon His immutable character and immutable nature, and according to His immutable plans, God is acting. And He, and I, I like how I like how uh, Frame brings this out here. He, he has wrote the play, but he has actually written himself into the play as the main character, uh, as the protagonist, right? Uh, read the book of Job. Who's the protagonist? God is, not Job. God's the protagonist. It's about God. It's not about Job. Um, he wrote, he, he's written himself into the play where he is the main character and and he is the one affecting all things uh, so so we can be sure that our God will do and live according to his nature and not in things not be otherwise so we're not we're not now entering by saying God is acting in time and therefore God appears to us can you think eternally? No, you can't. Uh, you can't think infinitely. But God, so, so we know God in time. And when we see God working in history, we see God working in process. And so, uh, we, we, we see Him doing those things that we talked about, being that God that He describes, a God who relents. A God that, when I repent, He changes towards me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was, one, was once blind, but now I see. There was a time that you were without Christ, alien from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were, were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, who is our peace. So I experience all that in God relenting towards me in grace, relenting towards others in judgment. A God that is working in process according to His divine plan. So when we talk about, some people, will, some people want to say that what we describe here is anthropomorphic. That's a big word. 
It's got more than one syllable, right? Anthropomorphic. Anybody got an idea what anthropomorphic means? All right, so we got, we got uh, the word for man, anthropos, that's man, and morph. Anybody know what morph is? Change. So the idea that God... that God is acting in accordance with what man is. So when we talk about God having eyes, ears, arms, hands, <laughs> things like that, those are anthropomorphisms. We're describing him with human characteristics. Why? Not because God has those characteristics. I mean, outside of the incarnation, that is. But because that's what we understand. We can understand God's arm being his power, his hands being his power, his eyes being his knowledge. We can understand those things. And they say that to us talking about God acting in time is an anthropomorphism. It's, it's just there as a device for you and me to understand God. And the issue that John Frame takes up here, and I agree with, is this doesn't quite cut it. That we are kind of saying that what God is doing in time is not really real. But when we're reading the scriptures, it is real. Who did this, Isaiah 41? Who raised up Babylon, set a path before him, put the world before him, gave a sword in his hand and power in his hand to come and do these things? He says, I, the Lord, did these things. Right? He did them in time. So, so when we talk about his eternal nature and decrees outside of time and what he is doing inside of time, they are both real. They're not, they're not just the same as you and me talking about God having hands or eyes or things of that. So they're real. What he is doing up here, I'll draw the box again. We'll call this box time. Sorry about the box here. This is time. Here's the Lord over time, acting in time. What he is doing outside and inside of time is real. And we can't put him in a box and say that time, as he's acting in time, somehow he's limited because he is acting as Lord. <clears throat> so, all throughout the scriptures, we have him doing, well, humbling himself, really, to act in time in a way of grace that you and I can know. Uh, and I'm not getting into my, my spill on the humility of God, but it says he humbles himself to behold the things in heaven. Uh, but ever since the very first verse of the Bible, he has been not only beholding the things in heaven, but actively involved in them. He acts in time, and that's real. He created the world, and then the first day he did what? He, act, he acted in time. He's been, he didn't start acting in time just so man could see it and understand. He started acting in time from the very first verse of Genesis. When he created time and space and matter and everything that is in the universe 
And then in the first day, he divided day and dark, uh, darkness, darkness from night, or dark from light. Said, and then he named them. So after he'd done that, he's acting sequentially. And then he evaluated, saw the light was good. And, and then the second day comes, and what did he do? He continues to act sequentially. So first day, then a second day, then a third day, and then so on, where he names and evaluates and looks, steps back after and before. So he is acting in time. He is acting by way of revelation, by way of grace, even before you and I could ever, before our ancestor, first ancestor ever opened up his eyes and saw that there is a God. So... Those are real. I just want to bring up the, what God is doing. What God is doing in your life is very real. Uh, it's just, it's God working in here and God working in, in a relational way with you. And, and, and every correction, every act of grace, every act of restoration, every, everything is, is real and experienced by both you and God in the passing and process of time. So... That's, that's uh, just a few things. I want to talk about a couple heresies. I don't want to go into um, a great amount of time uh, describing this. I've talked to you before about... Um, there are some other theories out there about how God acts in time. And some of them we talked about with God's knowledge. We talked about middle knowledge and, uh, and things of that. But uh, here's a couple others that are kind of related because most of these things all have, most of these heresies all have one thing in common. They want to say uh, man can do and be whatever man decides with their will to be. Uh, this idea of libertarian freedom is what they want to defend. In order to defend that, they have to start talking about God differently. They can't have a God that decreed all things, ordained all things, brought, brings all things to pass, that, uh, so on and so forth. So one, one thing is called process theology. I was taking a... Uh, I was taking a uh, philosophy course where they were talking about uh, Hegel, <laughs> uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel which, by the way, has had a huge influence on our culture still. Uh, anybody ever heard of Hegel, other than me mentioning his name? Uh, he was an um, early 19th century, uh, late 17th century, early, or late 18th century, early 19th century philosopher. Uh, he has a couple pupils that took his philosophy and ran with it. One, one pupil was named Karl Marx. Uh, you know, have heard of Karl Marx. Karl Marx is very Hegelian. Um, and then you have um, uh, another pupil. His name was Charles Darwin. You've heard of him. All, both of those just took Hegel's philosophy and applied it different ways. Uh, Dar Darwin applied it to biology, and Marx applied it to politics and history, man mankind's history. So... Uh, you have people like uh, um, Boltmann and, 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 and others, uh, Karl Barth, who applies it to theology. All right. So what is process theology? Well, I was bringing up this philosophy class because I did a, uh, 
I had to do a project, just a, a, a project uh, describing Hegel's philosophy in picture form. So I just did a picture of, uh, I did four pictures on a board of an eye opening. <laughs> and I said, Hegel believed that history is an eye opening experience for God. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a very uh, sophomoreish way to describe uh, Hegel's philosophy. And, but, but in a certain sense, that is true. What, what, does, what does process theology say about God? Well, it says that there is this nature of God that is all possibility. And it exists necessarily but abstractly. There is this abstract existence of God, but it's not real, it's just abstract, and it's possible. So there's all these possibilities. And just as with Marx, just as with um, uh, Darwin, what, what the process is all about is becoming. So God is a being is not a being, but a becoming. Does that make sense? All right. So what they see is God knows at any point in time everything that is knowable, but God is changing, and this is related also to his knowledge, but we didn't necessarily delve into process theology about his knowledge because this is talking about his experience of time, almost this idea that, that time itself is the theodicy. Is God realizing himself, realizing truth, realizing all these things? God is in a process of history. God, to a certain extent, is the process of history. And it's related, anybody ever heard of pantheism? What is pantheism? Now, it's very hard uh, for process theology not to see God, see God in all things. Now, they do not prefer to call themselves pantheists. Now, pantheism just means everything is God, <laughs> and everything is part of God realizing himself in process theology. Um, but God is that being that is becoming, or that becoming, not being, <laughs> he's becoming, he's process, he, he's process. Now, they prefer to call it panantheism. You and I are just part of that spark of the divine that is helping God real, realize himself so on and so forth. Now, there are several things that are, prob that are problematic. I hope you all see them. None of that's scriptural. <laughs> all right? That is not the scripture, scripture, uh, scriptural idea of God, not what is, not what is declared. Uh, God, uh, God's existence is uh, temporal. Prior to creation, he, that, that, that nature of God is concrete. That nature of God is unchanging. He is the same. Amen? Psalm 102. He's the same. Remember that. Um, uh, in every moment of the divine life, God, God transcends time. And he is not part of the process of time. He enters time only for you and I as a, uh, for, for, for bringing us into uh, his fellowship with him. Um, he has exhaustive knowledge. Scripture says that he has exhaustive knowledge that, that refutes process theology. Uh, God is, God's nature is actual, not just what he does in time is actual, but his nature is actual. 
Um, he is the unchanging Lord of time and many other things that we can call, we can say about this. I'll just read, re read what uh, Frame says. God as consequent in process thought is not clearly distinct from the world uh, according to their thought, but with this, uh, or but with the scriptures, he is clearly distinct. There is a creature-creator distinction. And you will find a lot of the liberal theologians of the day, if you scratch deep enough into their th theology, this is what they think of God. There's nothing concrete. There is nothing, there is just him becoming. Why is it okay for certain things to, for cer why are certain things right today that God has declared wrong well, because they believe in a changing God. God's just, he's gaining more knowledge. He knows more that is knowable now that wasn't knowable then. And because uh, he's a God that is in time and, and everything outside of time is just his abstract possibilities. That is process theology. I know that's a heavy thought. You all didn't want to talk about process theology this morning when you came, right? You say, I'm ready to go talk about process theology. Uh, but you all understand what process theology is. It's unbiblical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's growing like AI. <laughs> yeah, and God is AI. It's growing and it's becoming more and more aware. <laughs> um, uh, so that's process theology, and there's one other heresy. And I, I don't blush to call them heresies because they're directly opposed to what God has taught in the scripture about himself and his relationship to time. But this is futurism. Futurism. Now, this is a little bit more murky. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on it. Uh, there are uh, Moltmann uh, wrote a book uh, um, uh, called The Theology of Hope. Uh, that really kind of outline this. There's, there's other people like, like uh, Pannenberg, uh, another kind of philosopher, theologian that really kind of brought this to the forefront. What is futurism? Well, not so much. That what, futurism is hard to wrap your mind around, uh, but it states that God is what will be. God is what will be. Uh, God is not yet because uh, the past is gone. The present, uh, um, well, I'll just, I'll just read it here. For them, God is transcendent. What they mean by transcendent is he's future. And time is what is transcendent to us, uh, not, not the idea of God as presented in the scripture. Uh, He's not one who lives in the realm above us, nor uh, as one who rules the world as Lord now, but as future time that it will inevitably overwhelms the present. So the idea here is that the future is open and that which will be uh, uh, is, is our hope. There's an openness about the future to allow for us to make all our free decisions now, but God is what is inevitably will be. And they will, and they will, um, and they will beat the drum on the um, on uh, the Exodus chapter three, uh, where they'll, they'll they'll say God is not saying I am that I am. He's saying I will be what I will be. Um, 
So it has a hard time that, that this, this, this is uh, kind of a loose, uh, loose idea of God and his transcendent is the fact that he will be, not that he is or was. Now, what's the problem here? It's unscriptural. <laughs> All right. What did, uh, what did Jesus Christ say of himself? I am he that was, is, and ever will be. What did we just read in Isaiah? He says, from generation to generation, I am the God that has done these things, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. So these are just false ideas uh, that are perpetuated. I just wanted to kind of make you familiar with the terms. Any questions about that? We've got about 10 minutes, and I want to introduce not another aspect of God's power is not only is he the Lord of time and the fact that he is eternal, he is infinite, but he's also the Lord of space. I forgot how to write a P. <laughs> he's the Lord of space. He's Lord over everything. I hope we're, hope we're getting that, that idea. Now, what are some of the terms here that we understand? Well, what is space? Just spatial reality. Um, uh, it's well, like time. It's hard, to, it's hard to describe once you start thinking about it. <laughs> like Augustine said about time, I know what time is until you ask me. <laughs> like I know what space is until you ask me to. Um, uh, space, space is just that spatial reality whereby, whereby matter, uh, matter exists and fills. Uh, so when we're talking about his spatial reality, these are some of the things that we talk about. We talk about, we talk about God in terms of his immensity. The immensity of God, these are some of the attributes that we normally talk about. Uh, not only the immensity of God, but the omnipresence. That's one of those infinite terms. He's infinite, omni, im, im, omnipresent. What does omnipresence mean? All right. Is he exists like in parts? Like, like uh, we're experiencing like uh, the, the toenail or something like that now, but he's not, but his brain is somewhere else. No, he's completely present at all points. He's here just as much as he is there. Why? Because he's not, yeah, because he's not limited. He's powerful. This is his, when you talk about it, omnipresence, we're talking about his power. He's not limited by space. You and me, like we talked about with time, we can start applying that to space too. Uh, I can't be two places at once. That's my limitation. Why? Because I'm human. <laughs> And, and I exist here in this moment, in this time, in this place. I can't be somewhere else. God does not have that limit. His power transcends space. But when we talk, that's what we mean by immensity. Is he transcends space? What we mean by omnipresence is he's in space at all points. Does that make sense? All right, so these are just the words that are used. But we're also getting into things about his relationship with matter when we're talking about space as well. Uh, God is incorporeal. <laughs> There's another five, $5 word, right? In other words, what, what did Paul say, or not Paul, but Jesus himself say, God is 
spirit. All right, he's incorporeal. God is spirit. Uh, also, uh, discussion about uh, uh, light. We can also add these ideas about uh, what it, uh, Brother Jamie's favorite verse, unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible. All right, <laughs> he's invisible. He's not someone, God, we cannot see God. But the only, to praise God, the only begotten Son has declared Him. God has been revealed through His Son. But as far as the nature of God, He is invisible. When we relate this to space and matter, we're also relating it to the idea of light. We can talk about His glory under this heading of Him being the Lord of space. His, uh, his glory dwelt in Israel. When it departed, what do they say? Ichabod? <laughs> Uh, the glory has departed. We could talk about the glory of God as it appears in space and in history and in time. And it's hard also to talk about space without talking about time. So, uh, so there's a reason why, uh, why uh, uh, Einsteinian and, and uh, physics uh, talks about space-time as a continuum. Of course, we see all three, space-time, matter, all coming to being. The very first verse... Uh, so those are some of the terms that we can that we're, we're going to need to talk about under this heading. Let's define some terms and uh, turn, if you will, to First Corinthians, First Corinthians, First Kings, eight. Let's talk about immensity. By the way, the word immensity is not in your Bible. <laughs> uh, just like Trinity, it's the best word we have to describe what we find in the pages of Scripture. There is one God, and there are three persons that are called God, worshipped as God. And they are, just, they are described as being the one true God, each person. Uh, so how else can we describe that without the word Trinity? Immensity is the same kind of thing. Um, that... Theology uses this concept. What do we mean by immensity is what, what uh, Solomon said here. And I should not only tell you all to turn there, but I should have turned there myself and listened to my own, uh, my own guidance, right? First, first Kings 8, 27, we have him, Solomon, building the temple. He's dedicating the temple. And he is praying to God to dedicate this temple. And he says this about God. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens. And here's the description here. Cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built it. So this is space cannot cannot contain God. So just like the term eternality with God, he cannot be limited by time. Here he cannot be limited by space. All right. So he. Uh, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less 
this house that I built. Um, it's, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> In fact, it's, uh, I almost started to sound like, a <laughs> like Donald Trump for a second. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but uh, it's, 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 a, it's a breach, really, of the second commandment. For us to say, God is this. All right? He's contained here. And really, our culture does that more than anybody. We say, we put a God in a box and say, this is what God is. We are the most idolatrous culture that's probably ever walked the face of the earth. But go to Isaiah 66. I'd already tell you to go there. We've got about three or four minutes to just finish some thoughts here about his immensity. Uh, Isaiah 66. Verses 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all these things have my hands made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. Alright, so he's saying here the prophet through prophecy of Isaiah. Almost the exact same thing that was being said. Um, Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, but he's so much greater. When we're talking about the heavens and the earth, what are we talking about but the whole of creation? It's his throne. But he's greater. The king's greater than the throne. And that's what Solomon was getting into. God cannot be contained in a space. He cannot be limited, um, which is good. He, he uh, everywhere you go, he's God. <laughs> All right, so uh, the th- we're just going to stop there because I don't want to get, we're going to talk about the ethics of this matter, but, but in all actuality, um, uh, that's just, we, it's just good for us to see the concept. Um, God is God is not only just the Lord of time. He's the same God that created and the same God that's now and the same God in the end. But as far as space, he's the same God here. And if I was to get on a jet plane and fly um, to the other side of the world, he would still be God there. And he's there's no people, there's no place that he is not sovereign there. Um, Think of the words of Psalm 139, uh, the classic psalm about his omnipresence. It says, if I was to ascend into heaven, he's there. If I was to go into the depths of hell, he's there. If I was to take wings and fly to the very point of the morning as far as I could to the horizon even there and that is the God of scriptures he's the Lord of space any any, um, questions complaints or grievances y'all can grieve if you want (laughs) I, I got broad shoulders I think I can take it any comments
All right, all clear as mud? Y'all digging some theology? All right. <laughs> Thumbs up if you're digging theology. All right. Well, we got about 15 minutes before the next hour.